Good morning, church. My name is Jacob. I'm the preaching minister here at Tribe Valley. This summer, we've been in a series called It's Good, and we're reminding ourselves that the gospel is good. We're trying to do two things in our teaching time this summer. One is we're trying to encourage ourselves as followers of Jesus, and by we're doing that by listening to Paul's words to the Thessalonian church from the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're just listening to what he has to say. He's sending them encouragement, and we're saying, hey, maybe those words can encourage us today as Christians who live in a world that doesn't always celebrate Jesus, that doesn't assume like we do, or like we should, that the gospel is good. Maybe they don't know, or maybe they've heard something that led them to believe the gospel is not good for them, for society, for our world. But if we as Christians believe the resurrection of Jesus, following Christ, the hope that we have for salvation is the best possible news for the world, we need to be ready to field some of those criticisms that Christians receive and respond in a loving and gentle way. So one, encourage. I guess I kind of already got into the second thing, which is equip ourselves to respond to some of the criticisms that people have uh, against Christianity. So this morning, I want to start in the text. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 2. And in a moment, I'm going to read you from the voice translation. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, this uh, is it's not the New International Version. It's not the English Standard Version. It's, uh, it's called a dynamic equivalent translation, which is trying to get more to the heart of what the meaning behind the, the text is rather than a word-for-word -word from the Greek to the English, let's study it and like make a chart and figure out what we should do with it. It's more of a, this maybe would have been closer to how the early church would have heard these words. And so if it's a little different, if they say Jesus the anointed instead of Jesus Christ, uh, know that the Greek word for that is Christ, that we transliterate Christ, is their word for Messiah, which means king, which is the anointed one. And that's why they sometimes say, the anointed, sometimes they say, Jesus, the liberating king. That's all pointing to that title, the messianic, he's the Messiah, he is the Christ. Anyway, there's your first little freebie for today. Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah. Messiah means king, an anointed one, a liberating king. Um, what we're going to hear this morning requires a little bit of setup, a little bit of explanation, because again, Paul is talking to the church. They had some questions for him, and he's responding to the concerns that they had. Now, the concerns they had may not be the same as the concerns that we have today. Specifically, there was a rumor going around that the return of Christ, you know, the second coming, the return of Jesus, had already happened. And some Christians were going, these people said, Jesus came back and we missed it. Is that true? Paul's going to tell them, nope, nope, we didn't. Uh, but people are saying that, uh, but that's not, that's not the case. And in this chapter specifically, he's going to make references to some, uh, some pictures that are painted for us in Scripture about what happens at the end of time. At the time of the resurrection of Jesus and all the saints, there's going to be this battle between good and evil, and Jesus is going to very easily and very quickly rid the world of evil once and for all. It's, it's talked about Satan having been bound up for a while, but then he's going to be released only to be completely destroyed. And if you're not familiar with that story, remember a few months back we studied the book of Revelation? And it talks a lot about that, and we sort of explain what's going on there. It's this, this picture that's painted for us of a, a battlefield, good and evil, and good overcomes. The good news is, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. 
That's what Paul's going to refer to. And if you don't know that story, it might sound a little bit weird. And some of the things that he's going to reference here, you might not be familiar with. But just know, this was a concern that they had, and Paul is going to encourage them and say, nope, what you need to do is just hold on to your faith. Don't be swayed by some false teachings that are out there, but just keep, stay the course. Trust in Jesus, be faithful. Okay, so that's the setup. Let's hear the words from Paul to the Thessalonian church. Second Thessalonians chapter two. He says, since brothers and sisters, we are on the topic of the coming of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, and how we will all gather to meet him we ask that you don't let your minds get quickly rattled or become anxious because of someone else's so-called spiritual revelation or because someone gave you a message or claimed to know of a letter allegedly from us reporting that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay? Already a mouthful. Don't be deceived by anyone. That day, that amazing day, it won't come until after the great rebellion and the unveiling of the rebellious one. As the spawn of death he delights in destruction. He sets himself up as the great adversary of God and vies for a place above all other so-called gods or objects of worship. If it were possible, he would even take a seat. Yes, he would exalt himself in the temple of the one true God, declaring that he himself is God. Don't you remember me telling you all this the last time we were together? You know what restrains him now and what will hold him until the exact time when he will be revealed. For the mystery of sin is already working its way through the world. He who holds him back now will continue to suppress him only until he is pulled out of the way. It is then that this rebellious one will finally, or will be finally unleashed. But the Lord will slay him with, his, with the breath of his mouth. And with the splendor of his coming, he will bring him to his predetermined end. Still, the rebellious one arrives with all sorts of power, performing signs and fake miracles sanctioned by Satan. He employs every manner of wicked deception to while away those who are destined for eternal death because they reject the love of the truth that leads to salvation. Because of this, God sends a deceptive influence over them so that they will wander from the truth and believe the lie. As a result, God will judge all of those who did not entrust themselves to the truth when it faced them, but instead reveled in wickedness. Paul says that's what's going to happen. But then here's the encouragement for the church. But that is not you, dearly beloved brothers and sisters of the Lord. We cannot help but thank God for you at all times, because from the beginning, he handpicked you for salvation through the Spirit's sanctifying work and your belief in the truth. He called you to this when we shared our good news with you. And now you can take part in the glory of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, our liberating King. So brothers and sisters, all you need to do now is stand firm and hold tight to the line of teachings he, that, that we have passed on to you, whether in person or in a letter. Now may our Lord Jesus, the anointed one himself, and God our Father, who has loved us, comforted us eternally, given us a good hope by his grace, bring comfort to your hearts and strengthen your wills to accomplish every good work and word. Take a moment sometime. 
reread these words on your own and just put yourself in the shoes of somebody who feels like giving up on Jesus or who feels like they're part of a church and maybe they feel like part of the body that's an insignificant part. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if it makes a difference. And then get this letter from Paul, somebody who had heard the voice of Jesus, encountered the living Christ, and started all of these churches, made this name for himself, and was persecuted and thrown in prison, and he himself says, I've heard of your faith, heard of your dedication. Man, it's a good thing. Man, it's a blessing to the kingdom, the big picture of what Christ is doing. Just think about how much of an encouragement that word would have been. As I said, we may not spend a ton of time asking uh, each other, asking God to give us wisdom about the topic of the return of Jesus, the, the coming of Christ. Has that already happened? Is that going to happen? Uh, Jesus himself even says, like, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Don't stress about that. That's not a question that we have as much these days. Or we worry, did we miss it? Did we get the wrong information about this and, and start to wonder and, and, and turn around? It's like if someone's ever given you directions and you're driving and you're like, I think I missed the turn. Nod your head if that's ever been a situation that you found yourself in. Like, did I miss the turn? I, I can't tell. I feel like I've gone too far. Do I need to go back? And then somehow, maybe you see the turn or you stop and ask somebody and they say, no, no, no. You didn't miss it. You just keep going. You haven't gone far enough yet. Yeah. And so you go, oh, it's such a relief to know, okay, well, I was worried. And, and then someone says, nope, here's where you are. We may not have questions about the second coming of Jesus, but there's a parallel issue in our world today that we're going to talk about. And it's related to a question and a criticism that people often have for Christians. And that issue is what should be a Christian stance on same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, and how Christians can love our LGBTQ plus neighbors. Like the Thessalonian church, Jesus followers today might think something like, we've always been taught to believe this, but now there are a lot of people saying things that have changed. Did we miss the turn? Should we update our files? Are we supposed to believe something different? And the uncertainty increases as more and more critical voices ask or assume or accuse Christians with the main question that we're going to explore today. And that question is, isn't Christianity homophobic? And notice how this question is worded, kind of like in the negative. Not like, is it? Because I, I don't think it is. It's more, isn't it? Is it not? Because a lot of people assume that it is. Several years ago, I was doing a, a Bible study with some high school guys, and we were talking about um, assumptions that people have about Christians. You know, if they're not familiar with Christianity, they assume Christians are automatically this, or all Christians must be this, or think this. And as an example, I, I said to the group of students, I said, yeah, it's, it's kind of like how some people think that all Christians hate gay people. And one of the high school students said, wait, but Christians do hate gay people, don't they? And then he looked at me and said, do I hate gay people? <laughs> it was an interesting question. Wait, can you tell me what I think? Because I don't know what I think. Who am I supposed to hate? And I said, all right, well, first of all, uh, no, we don't hate gay people. As followers of Christ, we are called to hate no one. We're called to love everyone. Those that are like us, those are dissimilar from us, those we agree with, those who we consider to be our enemies, love your neighbor, love God, love everybody. 
It's a message of love all the way through. So no, we don't hate gay people. But that comment stuck with me as I consider this young man who didn't quite know what he believed. And he was looking to me to say, what do I believe? What do we believe about this topic? And I don't think that he's alone. I think there are a lot of Christians who aren't 100% sure what we believe, or maybe we know what we believe and we're not sure what we're supposed to do with that belief. Maybe we know what we think, but we're not sure why we think that. Maybe what we believe about this issue comes more from culture rather than coming from the Bible. Maybe that's because the church hasn't spent a lot of time talking about it or teaching about it. Maybe as a Christian, you've established what you believed a long time ago, but you haven't thought about it in a while. You haven't considered the conversation. And maybe some of us just prefer to let people leave those views alone and say, that's, we're talking about sex and, and sexuality and things here. That's kind of a private thing. We shouldn't be talking about that publicly or, I mean, just let's, let's leave it up to people to decide. I know more than one minister who, when this topic comes up and they say, I'm not going to touch that one. That is a hornet's nest I'm not even going to come close to. It's understandable. My guess is that everyone here, everyone, everyone, is at least close to someone who identifies as gay or has experienced same-sex attraction, which makes it a personal issue, which is one of the reasons people leave it alone. Like, ah, ew, it's, you know, people are going to get triggered. People are going to get fired up if you say anything about it one way or another. Statistically speaking, 14% of females and 7% of males experience some form of same-sex attraction in their life, which means that chances are good that you know somebody, chances are good that you love somebody, chances are good that you worship with somebody who has experienced same-sex attraction. And as I mentioned last week, I kind of previewed this, started talking about it, uh, the traditional Christian view is that God's design for sex is one man, one woman, and a committed marriage relationship. That's what I believe. That's what I believed a while ago, and I, you know, revisited it. I continue to study it. I continue to listen to voices. That's still where I'm at. It also is the belief of uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. If you forget who that is, Rebecca McLaughlin has been our guide through our summer series about responding gracefully and lovingly to criticisms people make of Christians. She wrote this book, Confronting Christianity. I recommend it. Pick it up, read it. Um, after next week, you can borrow my copy. I'll put it in the church library there. Um, I'll talk more about her in a minute. But I also want to point out that this view, this traditional view, is falling under a lot more public scrutiny than it has in the past, which is why it's important for us as Christians to know what we believe, why we believe it, why people assume that it's automatically hateful if you're not affirming, and how we can respond, as always, respectfully, lovingly, and gently. Rebecca McLaughlin, you can go ahead and show her picture, Molly. She is a woman who was raised in the church. She's a follower of Jesus. She has a PhD from Cambridge, as well as a theology degree. She's married to a man named Brian. She has three children, and she is also a woman who has experienced same-sex attraction for as long as she can remember. She 
is very upfront with saying, I have always been attracted exclusively to other women since the time I was young. As a teenager and into her college years, she prayed to God that it would go away because it was problematic in her life. God, maybe when I get to college, I'll start being attracted to men. And she says, it never went away. It never changed. To this day, she is still same-sex attracted. She happens to fall into that 2% category of population of women who are exclusively, like only physically attracted to other women. And yet, she's still married to a man, and she still has three children. Does that strike anybody else as unusual? Or, hmm, how do you do that? One of the reasons I think that Rebecca is a good voice for us to listen to is she understands this issue on the theological level, the cultural level, and obviously on a very personal level. And because she believes that same-sex sexual relationships are out of bounds for Christians, she surrenders her natural sexual desire for women over to Christ. And so because of her commitment to Jesus, she makes choices in her life that align with the traditional Christian stance on sex and marriage. Now may be a good time for us to take a little side jaunt and ask and answer the question, why have Christians for centuries concluded that sex belongs in a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship? Well, it mainly comes from scriptures. You might be familiar with these scriptural teachings. Uh, I kind of want to blast through these real quick and just, there's a list up here. You can take a screenshot and go and check these out a little bit later. But in the Old Testament, the Levitical law, men sleeping with men is explicitly prohibited by Jewish law. Like, don't do that. That's not the way. And then if you get into the New Testament, you have Jesus reaffirming God's creations of humans, male and female, and his, his one flesh, like the two become one. One flesh um, affirms that design for marriage that is consistent with the Old Testament view. You can read about this in Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 19. It's interesting, one time I saw an internet meme that was trying, that was uh, uh, an affirming position, and it was a, a pamphlet, and it said, everything that Jesus taught about homosexuality, and then the next frame was, the pamphlet was opened up, and it was completely blank. And they're, they're trying to make this point, like, this isn't something Jesus ever talked about, and Jesus ever taught about. Uh, it's true, it's not as explicitly mentioned as it is in Leviticus or in some of the New Testament letters, but these passages up here, you have Jesus affirming the traditional man-woman marriage relationship. So it's not 100% true that Jesus didn't weigh in on this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes people turning away from God, throwing themselves into uh, sexual relationships. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, Paul says. This is part of a bigger bigger theme of a section, but we're just going to zoom in on this part. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul reaffirms the scriptural prohibitions on sexual sin, um, heterosexual and homosexual, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in a list of, of what he refers to as the lawless and disobedient. Like, these people are lawless in God's eyes and disobedient. He includes uh, those who strike their mothers and fathers. That's not good. Don't do that. Murderers, also frowned upon by God. The sexually immoral, across the board, 
specifically mentions men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and he goes on. I want you to notice here, Paul is not singling anybody out. He's not throwing stones at gay folks here. This is an all-inclusive list of people whose behaviors put them outside the will of God and therefore are in need of the grace of Jesus. And Paul, again, he doesn't step outside and be like those people. He includes himself in that list. He's like, it's, it's us who need the grace of Jesus. And at the end of this list and in this teaching, he says, of which I am the worst. I am the worst offender. I, among all of us, are in the most need of the grace of Jesus. And then in another spot in his letter to the Corinthian church, Corinthians chapter 6, um, his, God's prohibition against same-sex sex is indicated. And the wording here indicates both active and passive male partners. Again, you can go, you can read this on your own, you can study this kind of stuff. Nowadays, it's becoming very popular, you might have heard this, for Christians to explain and interpret these scriptures in a way that makes room for God to affirm same-sex relationships, if they're in a committed, uh, monogamous type of situation. And the argument, it's a longer argument than this, but you'll hear things like, the Old Testament passages, well, that's the old law. Like, aren't we under the new covenant in Christ? Well, yes. And they'll say, well, the prohibitions against same-sex sex kind of falls under that same category as like eating shellfish. We're not bound by that. Or wearing polyester, like threads of, of the different type. You're supposed to separate those in the Levitical code. We're not, we don't have to do that these days, so why should we have to do this other thing? That's kind of how the argument goes. And as far as the New Testament passages go, they will say, well, the authors of the New Testament were only familiar with one kind of same-sex relationship, and that was usually older men with younger boys, like in an apprentice relationship. So there was a power dynamic that was off. So the main argument is those relationships were exploitive, and it's not the thing that was wrong with them is not that it was same-sex attraction or same-sex sexual activity. It was because some people were taking advantage of, and that's what God disapproved of. So when Paul says, here is what you should not do, the argument goes, nowadays we have same-sex relationships that are not exploitive. They are committed. They are, you know, one person. It's not like being inflamed with lust for somebody and, and acting on it. It is it's, a, it's a, a modern cosmopolitan type relationship. Since they didn't have that back then, this is okay, while that is not. They, they say that they're talking about two different things. When I hear these arguments, I realize that this comes from a desire to love and to affirm people and to remove obstacles that keep outsiders, young people especially, our children and our grandchildren, they, they're trying to remove those obstacles from coming to Jesus. Because like I said last week, for a lot of people, this is a deal breaker. If you hold the traditional view, it's like, I will not listen to the rest of your philosophy. That is it for me. And I get it. I hear their hearts. And I've heard their arguments. But like I said, I still hold the view that a faithful interpretation is the traditional one. I don't think the interpretation and I don't think the, the justification for it is faithful. Yes, many Old Testament laws are non-binding for us today, but the logic of op opposite sex marriage and the prohibition on homosexual sex are still reaffirmed multiple times in the scriptures. We're not bound to the legal code, that has changed, but the moral code is still the same. And the argument that says that the first century Christians didn't know about monogamous same-sex relationships, 
is just not true. This is an argument that's been brought up since the 1980s, and scholars have evaluated it, and they've done research, and even more research has surfaced since then. And the conclusion comes away with, no, they, they knew about committed same-sex relationships back then. And it wasn't just decrying the exploitive nature of these relationships, although that was there too. That was a big part of the Roman world. That's not okay either, but the argument doesn't really hold. And in addition to the consistent prohibitions against same-sex sexual activity, there are also Scripture's positive view of opposite-sex marriage to take into account. We talked about this last week, the picture that Scripture gives us of what marriage is supposed to be, these two different things coming together are supposed to symbolize and give us this glimpse of heaven and earth coming together, Christ and the church. Marriage points to something else. It's important for Christians to know that these scriptures that were up on the screen over here are often considered and referred to as clobber passages in the LGBTQ community. If you're not familiar with that term, you should be aware of it. They're called clobber passages because they have been used to clobber people. People say, hey, I, I, I'm part of this church. I want to follow Jesus. I'm experiencing same-sex attraction. What should I do? Oftentimes, churches have, have panicked and said, okay, here's the six passages you need to know. They hit people over the head with them. Or they throw them in the middle and say, like, go learn those and then come back and you can be part of what we're doing here. Ooh. That's not good. That's not loving. It's clobbering somebody. Not that these passages are not worth listening to. I mean, we're, I'm holding to them and saying this is evidence for why we believe what we believe, but the way we communicate truth is just as important as the truth itself. I don't want us to be clobbering people with these passages. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned and uncomfortable about even like putting them on a screen as a list and saying, here's what it is. But in case you don't know, this is where... It comes from. Going back to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I like the approach. Because again, it's not throwing stones. It's not clobbering somebody, creating this difference. Like, I'm different than you. Paul puts himself in the midst of all Christians and says, we are all sinful on some, some term. We all need the grace of God. It's everyone who is in need of transformation and salvation in Christ. And that's something that our friend Rebecca McLaughlin points out, it's not just same-sex attracted people who are called to submit their sexual desires to Christ. It's everybody. It's opposite-sex attracted people. It's married people. It's single people. It's never have been married people. It's used to be married people. If you listen to Jesus, you hear that his standard for what we're supposed to do with our sexual desires is very, very high. It was high at the time in the first century. Remember we talked about how there was a lot of uh, promiscuity, there was a lot of leniency for men, even in marriages, to go and visit temple prostitutes or have courtesans or just treat their wives like the cook, I'll come home when it's dinner time kind of thing. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Wives and husbands, like Christ in the church, there's supposed to be this mutual submission and love and respect and laying down our lives. People in the ancient world would have gone, what? Nobody does that. But he also calls marriage people, married people to submit their sexual desires, even for their spouses. There's, there's, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You submit that to Christ. Not just don't commit adultery. Jesus says, look at someone lustfully. If you have a, a lustful thought for someone ever at all, 
you've committed adultery in your heart. Whoa, that's Jesus' standard. A lustful look makes you out of bounds. Calls married people to submit their desire for sex within marriage when it's unavailable. He says, submit your attraction to someone who is not your spouse. Married people have to do that as well. We have to say no to the people we're not married to. Single people were called to submit your involvement in pornography. By the way, also married people and everybody are called to that same standard. Single people are called to submit the invitation to participate in hookup culture today. I'm not married. Well, that doesn't matter. I still want to have sex with people, and it's easier to do it now than ever before. Jesus says, I'm asking you to give that to me. Surrender that to me. This is the way of the Lord. We are called to give everything in our lives to Jesus. We're talking about sex and sexuality, but that applies to everything. Sexual and non-sexual desires. Our desire to be greedy, to be self-interested, to be spiteful, to hold a grudge, to be vengeful. All of these, Jesus says, I get it, and I understand those feelings. I'm asking you to lay them down on the ground and trust me instead. It's a good thing that we have the grace that we need in Christ. No one is getting it 100% right. It's a good thing that we don't need to be perfect. But we still have the standard. We still have what Christ calls us to. And when it comes to sex and people who are same-sex attracted, when we say, nope, the, the biblical way, the thing that God designed us to do is, is a man, a woman, one of each, in a married relationship, that's where sex belongs. A lot of people hear that and they go, that's a tall order. Or even, that's not fair to somebody who experiences same-sex attraction or who only experiences same-sex attraction. What are they supposed to do? How can you, Jacob, whoever, as a married person, say, well, I get this option, but you don't. That is very often seen as an injustice. We need to know that that's how it sounds to people. And again, Rebecca McLaughlin, who herself experiences same-sex attraction only, but surrendered that desire to Christ, married a man, is in a loving, wonderful relationship with him, and has three kids. She's got some good responses for this. I'm going to give you a few quotes from our guide here. She says this, when you read Acts, because somebody asked her this question one time, isn't it unfair to expect same-sex attracted people to surrender that desire to Christ in their life. She says, when you read Acts, Christians are sentenced to a lot of things. Persecution, stonings, death, because of their belief in Christ. But loneliness is not one of them. Interesting. They're not sentenced to loneliness. We, we follow Christ together because we're part of this body where we experience family, where we experience intimacy. She also says this, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to sexual freedom, but it does not mean missing out. At its best, marriage is meant to leave us wanting more. It is a gateway drug to a far more fulfilling relationship. I don't know how comfortable you are referring to marriage as a drug. I like that image as a gateway drug. It's supposed to lead you to something else. And that something else is an understanding of how much you are loved and cherished in Christ. Marriage is supposed to get you there. If you can get there without marriage, Jesus says, great. Paul says, great. And then one more quote. People sometimes say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. It does not. Whoa. Everybody paying attention? Some people say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. It does not. The Bible commands same-sex relationships at the level of intimacy that Christians seldom reach. 
Let me explain in case you're confused. She's not saying same-sex sexual relationships are okay. She says all along they're out of bounds, according to the biblical interpretation. But what the Bible does do that often Christians neglect or forget or never quite reach is that it commands intimacy, intimate friendships, being as close as family because of how we're connected in Christ. Here's some examples of this. Acts chapter 2, you see Christians having everything in common, sharing their possessions, supporting one another with everything that they have. It's this beautiful picture of this early church who got the Spirit, Holy Spirit, following Jesus. Let's do everything together. Let's trust each other with our stuff, with our lives. Paul, remember we talked about Paul sending back the, the runaway slave back to his master. He doesn't say go be a good slave. He says treat him as a brother. Receive him and show him the love that you would show me. Paul describes this runaway slave as my very heart. Show him respect to him because he is my very heart. We don't talk about each other like that. This is the same-sex male relationship that is, is non-sexual, but his life is being poured out for this person who he's learned Christ with. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. Oh, you want to know what the greatest love is? Not married relationships. It's that someone would lay down his life for who? For his friends. The Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that Christians seldom reach. Quick trivia question, a little Bible knowledge trivia. Paul never refers to Christians as Christians in the Bible. You read the whole New Testament, you'll never hear Paul refer to believers as Christians. He calls them saints. Uh, depending on how it's translated, you might see the word believers. But you know what the number one thing he says the word that he uses, the term to describe followers of Christ. You know what it is? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Family language. It's a good time to ask ourselves this question. If we are holding to the traditional view of marriage and sex, are we holding to the biblical view of what intimacy should look like in Christ? Are we as a church equipped to say, we're surrendering our sexual desires to Christ, but we can find intimacy right here. We're going to lay down our lives for one another. We're going to be in community with one another. We're going to be your surrogate grandmothers and grandfathers and brothers and sisters, and we're going to do life together, and you're not going to miss out. You're still going to experience Christ, marriage or not marriage. Or, are we not equipped to provide that, to offer that, to a world that is asking this question daily. Have we hunkered in our bunkers? Have we homogenized ourselves? Have we already picked who we like and who we don't like? Do we have little practice loving our neighbors because we simply don't know our neighbors? Have we neglected intimate friendships because we put the majority of the weight of our social and relational needs on our spouses? I get to ask these questions. I don't have to answer them. <laughs> the position that I get to be in. I throw these hand grenades out there and, and you guys get to wrestle with them. But the question is before us, what should the church do with this understanding in light of this, this question that society is asking us? I came up with three things. This is not exhaustive by any means, but I just want to quickly give you three thoughts. One, understand what you believe and why. This is important. With that uh, high school boys question, in mind. What do I believe? Who do I hate? Well, let me help you with that. Do you know what you believe 
and why. Understand what those who disagree with you believe and why. Listen to faithful and loving and gentle and non-hysterical voices like Rebecca McLaughlin. Learning, to, uh, learning and understanding are important. Having conversations like this one. Uh, this fall, Lisa and I are leading a class with the teens. I think we're, in October, we're going to do a whole thing on healthy sexuality. That's something that the schools have a version of what they want to teach, what healthy sexuality looks like. But the church needs to have a voice in that conversation too. This is, this is what Christ calls us to. I think that's part of it. I think maybe just talking about it more. I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes we don't know what we think because it doesn't come up. We just kind of, eh, hands off, don't want to touch the hornet's, hornet's nest. I think if things are off limits, then that communicates that faith in Jesus doesn't affect this area of my life. Like my relationship with Jesus impacts my Sunday morning uh, and maybe a couple other things that I do with my money and my time, but like, I'm saying it's everything. We need to talk about it like it is. Second thing, maybe as a church, we need to create spaces of intimacy. How did I word it on the slide, Molly? What did it, what does it say? The next one, create opportunities for intimacy. Pretty close. If we're saying, I don't understand what I wrote here. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Maybe just doing better. If we're saying, we will love you. Do we mean it? Can we put, can we back that up with our actions, with like the experience we have as a church? There's a, a, a Christian man who's also a teacher and an author and who also is a gay man who's uh, never been married because of his belief in the traditional view of marriage. He's surrendered that over to Christ. He's a good voice that's worth listening to. I want to just show you a, a clip uh, from a video because somebody asked him at a conference, you know, what do you think the church should do? How can we better equip ourselves to, to love and offer Christ to our LGBTQ neighbors? And this is what he said. I think he's, he's this is just a fraction. There's way more, and I'll talk more about that later, but uh, Molly, go ahead and play this video. Listen One of the things that will make a difference is if we, we speak about these kinds of struggles in a way that recognizes they exist inside the room and not just outside. I know for me, I was, I was quiet about my own wrestling with, with sexuality simply because for many years, the only references I heard were to do with the big bad world out there. Um, I was never given any kind of indications, permission, if you like, for this to be something Christians might wrestle with. Mm. So I think as we teach, as we disciple, as we speak about these things, to do so in a way that, that recognizes some of us wrestle with this. That's not just an, an outside the church thing. Yeah. Your comment about singles just reminded me of this. There was one writer who said that, that intimacy is a lot like food. And he says, if your only choice was between starvation and eating bad food, you'd choose really bad food because you've got to eat something. And he said, if, if the choice in church is no intimacy or biblical forms of intimacy, you'll end up going with biblical forms of intimacy because we need intimacy. We're designed to be known, to have deep and rich interactions with each other. So therefore, we need to provide healthy biblical ways of experiencing intimacy in yeah, our churches. Yeah. Raises a good question. How well is the church providing opportunities for intimacy? 
or uh, deep friendships. The third thing is we need to repent of our homophobia without compromising our theology. Sometimes the reason that people will change their views on traditional views of marriage and sex and same-sex relationships is because their whole life they were taught that gay people, same-sex attracted people are bad or deficient in some way. And then they meet somebody who is not. Uh, or they, they have someone in their family who they find out is same-sex attracted. And they go like, well, well, that can't be true. Then maybe the rest of what I heard isn't true. That's often what kind of brings people around to kind of changing their views on what Scripture says. Rebecca McLaughlin addresses this. This is a, one more video clip that I want you to hear because she, she words it much better than I could. So go ahead and let's, let's hear one more video clip. So people often think, you know, how do I love my, my Christian neighbor who struggles with same-sex attraction? Well, if I, if I start doubting what the Bible says, then that's showing more love and empathy to them. No, it's not. That's like cutting the legs out from under them to start doubting what, what the Bible says. Um, when I'm talking with non-Christian friends, I, I tend to say to them, actually, the, the Christian view of sexuality is weirder than you think. <laughs> it's about this extraordinary metaphor of Jesus' love for his people. That is why, from a Christian perspective, that's why God made male and female, primarily. It's why he made sex and marriage and romance and sexuality and attraction and all of these things, is so that in the, the very best human romance, we might get a tiny little glimpse of how much Jesus loves us. You know, just as in the very best human father, Amen. we get the tiniest little glimpse of God's fatherly love. Amen. Just as in the, the very best human friend, we get the tiniest glimpse of Jesus' sacrificing love for his friends. So in the absolute best human romance, we get this tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. Amen. So Christian sexual ethics is, is much weirder than people realize. Yeah, and I, I tell you what breaks my heart. I, I fairly often hear Christians say, um, I used to think that the Bible was against same-sex marriage. And then I met a gay guy at work, and he was a really nice guy. And he seemed to be in a really loving relationship with his, his boyfriend. In fact, their relationship seems much better than a lot of sort of heterosexual relationships I know. I'm not sure. And I'm thinking, okay, the basis of what we're saying that the Bible says is not that sort of gay people are in some generalized sense not nice people. You should not be surprised if your gay friend is caring and generous and kind and a, a trustworthy person and a good member of society. You, you, if you're wondering about that, you may have been raised with like legitimate homophobia, suspicion of gay people. Um, don't repent, like repent of that, but repent of what the Bible says, because actually if you do, you're only offering people death instead of life. I have uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, Sam Albury was the other guy. Not everybody I listen to is British, by the way. They both just happen to be uh, British. But on the back of your, your order of worship this morning, I, I, I kind of curated a little bit of uh, further investigation, or just what I think are some helpful resources. Uh, and so an article by Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, this other author, Rachel Gilson, is a voice worth listening to, in my opinion. So I just... Follow, use your phone to follow these QR codes or Google these things and listen to them. There's an article by Tim Keller. There's a longer article by Sam Albury. This third one is actually really great because it kind of explains, like, why do people think the way that they do now? Why, why have Christians changed their minds? Why is society so adamant on this topic? He sort of breaks it down and says, sociologically, here's why. Um, this, this is why things have shifted. And he explains it in a very 
clear and understandable and I think uh, faithful way. So please take this home and, and use this because this is obviously just the start of a much larger conversation that needs to happen. And again, this isn't this is a bad format for it because I'm doing most of the talking. It's not really actually a conversation. But let's just go back to where we started. Is isn't Christianity homophobic? How do we respond to that? The definition of homophobia being having or showing a dislike or prejudice against homosexual people. Well, hopefully what you've been hearing me say <laughs> bumble through for the last 30 minutes is no, it shouldn't be if we're doing it right. Not intrinsically. If we're treating people the way that Jesus calls us to, it shouldn't be. Has it been in the past? Yes. Can Christians demonstrate homophobia and their actions neglect gay people because of their prejudices? Yes, it absolutely can, but that doesn't mean that it should. Uh, last two thoughts, and then I'm done. Even so, we live in a world where anything short of 100% affirmation is going to be considered homophobic. Do you support gay marriage? Well, not according to my biblical views. I, I can't support that. Well, then you're hateful. Well, then you are bigoted. You are homophobic. I say, I don't think I am. I think we have a disagreement. I, I live in community where I disagree with a lot of what people think is within bounds and is, is okay. I'm not going to stand in anybody's way to do something that they've decided to do. I think Christ calls us to surrender our freedoms to him, but it's not up to me to block your freedoms. I want to love my neighbor. I want to support them, but the stance doesn't change. And because of that, a lot of people will say, that's automatically homophobic. Yes, you are. I don't know exactly what to do with that. And that may be the thing that is, is frustrating a lot of Christians. I want to be seen as virtuous. You may be entering a season of life where you're not going to, if you hold to the traditional view. So what do we do about that? This is what I want to close with. Two ideas. One of them is just reiterating what Paul said to the Thessalonians. So brothers and sisters, all you need to do now is stand firm and hold tight to the line of teachings that we have passed on to you, whether in person or in a letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One Himself, and God our Father, has loved us, comforted us eternally, and given us a good hope by His grace, bring comfort to your hearts, strengthen your wills to accomplish every good work and word. That's the first thing I think that is good advice for us. The second thing, I think, is less of an argument that we present, and it's more of an action that we demonstrate. That's going to be the best response for Christians to a skeptical world. I'll tell you a story to illustrate what I mean. Uh, Lisa and I were part of a church, and there was this young couple there who came into contact with uh, a young lady who was kicked out of her home. She was living on the streets, didn't have any place to be. Uh, and this young lady was a lesbian. She was attracted to other women. That was made known. And this young couple in the church said, well, you need a place to live. We have a place. You can stay with us. You don't have to pay rent. We see that there's a need here. We want to love you. We want to help you. We don't agree with some of your worldview. We don't agree with you philosophically. But live in our home. Live with our family. Live with our kids. She lived with them for almost a year. I think... That kind of thing is the best answer to the question. Isn't Christianity homophobic? You might think so, but if we're loving our neighbors, 
We are being the light of Christ, not just with our thoughts and our words and our you ought to's, but with our deeds. I think that that message is going to come through. Let's pray, and then uh, Darren's going to come back up here and close us out. Oh, Lord. Give us grace. Uh, Give us grace. Give us the ability to show grace. The prayer of Jesus is uh, forgive us. Help us to forgive others. Thank you uh, for the grace that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can be wrong, that we can make mistakes, that we can not get it right, even though we see what the destination is. We can see the target that we're aiming at and miss it again and again. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have and the invitation we have through Christ that surpasses that and overcomes that. Thank you, Lord. May we never forget that grace. May we never rely too much on ourselves. May we extend that grace to others. Teach us how to love, to love one another, to love as family, to love our neighbors, to love the people shouting at us, to love the people throwing stones at us, to not retaliate with violence, to not, uh, to not become unchristlike. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us creative solutions the way that Jesus showed us in the Gospels. In all things, make us more like Jesus. We are your people. We pray, have your way in us. Make us instruments of your peace. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.